It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh Richards. Welcome to the show, Josh. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you for having me. Well, you are very welcome. Very welcome. <laughs> and you are beaming in from what part of the world right now? Uh, we're tucked away down in Ocean Grove here. So I'm, I'm in Victoria, uh, but we're, we're sort of on the edge of the quarantine zone. So things aren't quite so bad here, but they're still pretty locked down. And that's Victoria, Australia, for all you non-Australians that beaming yeah. in from wherever you are in the world. Not Lake Victoria. Is that in no. South Africa? Like Victoria? Uh, no, I'm thinking Victoria okay. Falls is in Zimbabwe. Yeah, there we go. And Josh, uh, Josh Richards, amongst other things, you are a physicist, an engineer, a stand-up comedian, someone who participates in polyamory, and you're also yeah. a Mars One astronaut candidate. What a combination. It's a, yeah, I used to call it career ADD. Uh, definitely not able to stick with anything for, for any particular, well, got distracted by all sorts of different things on a regular basis. So, yeah, jumped around and did a lot of different things. Um, yeah, originally started uh, studying applied physics, uh, doing a degree in applied physics, wanted to be an astronomer, um, moved across to the Army as a combat engineer, so military engineering, uh, explosives engineering, that side of things. Um, and then, yeah, left that to get into the Royal Marine Commandos for a little while and then decided to leave that for stand-up comedy. So it's been a bit of a weird and wonderful path so far. <laughs> it's like Jason Bourne going to host The Tonight Show or something. Yeah, I, I think Matt Damon's far more attractive than I am and he's less beardy as well. So, yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, it's a tough comparison, I'm not going to lie to you, but... And uh, you're also a, a, a nearly a twice published author. Yeah, so that's next, a very big achievement. Yeah, I feel like that's actually where what I've been trying to find all along. To be honest with you, um, stand up was an amazing avenue for creativity and being able to share different things. But I actually enjoyed writing the comedy shows more than I enjoyed performing them. Most stand ups are natural extroverts and. It's actually taken me quite a long time to come to terms with the fact that I am not an extrovert. I'm quite the introvert. I actually don't like people that much at all. Uh, <laughs> and writing books is a really great avenue for me to be able to sort of be creative and share those things that I want to share, but do it in an avenue that suits my, my temperament. How would you describe an introvert to someone who is an extrovert? 
well, your own from words. a from a psychology background, sort of psychology perspective, it's essentially where you get energy from. Um, so how you what happens to your personal energy levels through human interaction. Uh, so an extrovert interacts with people and finds that their levels lift. They embrace it. They enjoy it. They feel energized from talking to people. Um, people like me tend to find conversing or speaking to large crowds exhausting. Um, and so while I might enjoy it and might be very good at speaking to a very large crowd, I don't come off stage feeling excited or energized. I feel like it's relief rather than excitement that it's done. So, um, it's very much focused on how you feel um, and what your energy levels do from human interaction. And mine are, my energy rises the less time I spend with people. It's That's easily the best explanation of an introvert I've ever had in my life. So thank you, Josh. Because <laughs> like, it's so foreign for a massive extrovert like I am, who, who I even feel like I've dialed it back over the last few years, particularly when I stopped drinking and doing drugs and philandering. But I, like, I, I am the opposite of that. I feel so uplifted yes. coming off the stage. And it's so interesting that you'd end up with the career choices that you've, that you've made for someone who wants to shy away from that. Well, it's, it, it's been a sort of almost a natural progression. Um, so I didn't, the stuff that I did with the military in particular, the areas that I excelled in were tended to be more solo ventures. They tended to be things where you were operating in very small groups. Um, I didn't like being a part of a large troop. I liked operating in some of the small reconnaissance units that we did where we had three or four guys. Um, sometimes you'd be down to two. Um, those sort of things were great. If I got to do something by myself, even better. Um, the best part about being out in the bush was that you wouldn't talk to anyone for a week. You'd use hand signals to signal what you were doing. There was nothing to talk about. Um, you were out there to do a job. So you wouldn't need to sort of go up and have a conversation or anything like that. You would just do what you were doing. Um, I Moving into stand-up, that was more a case of um, wanting to share stuff, wanting to talk about things, wanting to make people laugh. Um, and the best and most natural avenue I could find at the time was standing on stage and just talking. Um, and I got quite good at it, got a lot of practice at doing that, but it was exhausting. And I really never fit in with other comedians, um, folks who absolutely adore comedy. Um, I, it never quite sat right. Um, I would talk about the polyamory side of things later on, but I dated a, a comedian in two, 2015 who was essentially the one who introduced me to it. Um, and she was the exact opposite. She would come off stage glowing, like she would absolutely love it. And we never really reconciled the fact that I didn't feel that way. Um, I didn't, didn't love it. Um, I felt like an avenue for sharing information rather than something that I felt completely and utterly fulfilled by. Wow. It wasn't Corinne Grant by any chance, was it? No, it was not. I had a lot of time for Corinne. She's good value. She's great. But no, it was not Corinne Grant. <laughs> well, the reason I asked, speaking of polyamory, I went on two dates with Corinne Grant years ago. Yeah, cool. <laughs> met, her at the, uh, met her at the Corner Hotel in Melbourne. Yep. And <laughs> I'd been on, I've been on a lot of dates in my life. And now I'm happily settled down with my beautiful fiancé. But... Uh, all she spoke about was was um, like V8s. She's a huge V8 yeah. supercar fan. Yeah, yeah. And and I was just like, get me the hell out of here. It was like, 
it was fucking hilarious. Um, and because it was quite a uh, Corinne Grant, she was on Rove back then. She was pretty famous, yeah. and um, yeah. there was no chemistry. And you know, God love her. There was no no bad blood at all. I think it just fell yeah, down. This is before Tinder and Bumble sort of made their way into mainstream. But yeah, yeah, that was that was exciting. And so um, comedians, comedian, Australian comedians in particular, but you see it in the UK a little bit as well. Um, they tend to be fanatics about different things. Um, and wrestling, for some reason, is one of the really big ones. Um, so there'll be a lot of stand-up, male stand-up comedians in particular, who are just crazy about WWE and all that sort of stuff. Um, the the ex girlfriends of mine was a massive fan of is a massive fan of Survivor. Like, would watch it and stream it live from the US. Um, they. Yeah, that extrovert personality combined with standing on stage in front of large groups of people that for whatever reason, um, the really quite a lot of the very successful comics and a lot of the comics that I've worked with through the years, they they all seem to have these shared passions. And I think it's the drama um, to a certain degree. Um, it's the there's a certain level of nihilism to it. There's what's going on, what they're watching and what they're super invested in doesn't actually mean very much um, for the future of humanity or anything like that. And yet the drama is so high. And yeah. for whatever reason, a lot of comedians seem to adore that sort of stuff. Well, I, um, I had a crack at the raw comedy for, uh, two years in a row, 2015, 16. And my, my interest in it, Josh, was just to see whether I could do it. And, and I did it and, and I made people laugh and I was like, it was good fun. But my, that, that thing that you touched on about, you know, my, my purpose on this planet, I, I now figured out that I am to be on stage, but it's not doing comedy. It's doing things that will empower and inspire and, and motivate people as a, as a motivational speaker. So what else, what else did you get out of? doing stand-up i think the probably the biggest thing was the realization that it didn't suit me it was that realization of the introversion um it was like i said an avenue that i could share information through uh what changed i suppose was the comedy that i was doing especially the last edinburgh fringe that i did was 2012 and i the year before i'd done a comedy show about the end of the world uh it was all the science and religion around doomsday and i was trying to make doomsday as funny as possible um and it was a fairly sciencey show tended to talk about like asteroids and what wiped out the dinosaurs and all these sort of different things i took a bit of a sidestep uh in 2012 i decided to do a character sort of driven comedy show uh, where i dressed up as a giant koala called keith yanger management koala um played ukulele and screamed at people it was terrifying it's fucking Um, funny too (laughs) um what a lot of folks don't realize about keith is that he was essentially a mask for me to share stories from the military some of the stuff that had happened that i'd never spoken about um was shared through through keith um, it wasn't stuff that had happened to me. It was a funny story that Keith was talking about and it might sound horrifying. And by me sharing it through that mask, it then allowed me to start sharing it later on. Um, so I kind of took a sidestep and talked about some personal side of, dealt with some of those personal demons in 2012. But I was, before the fringe had even finished in 2012, I was already researching my next science type show and it was going to be a mission. It was going to be about a one-way mission to Mars. 
Um, it was going to be all focused around how I'd learned during my physics degree, we had the technology to get to Mars, but we didn't have the technology to come back. And so I was going to write this comedy show saying, let's do it. Like, what's the point in staying on earth? Um, it, let's just go for it. Uh, and as it was, I found an organization that was planning to do exactly that. So that provided sort of a pivot point for me to go, this isn't about comedy anymore. This is about how I'm planning to go to Mars. Um, I've found this organization that will hopefully facilitate that. And I'm shifting from being a comedian into someone who uses it as a as science communication. Um, I wasn't super focused on corporate speaking or anything like that. I really wanted to get people engaged with the idea of how important it was for us as a species to try and explore other planets. So I really focused on the science communication and that was kind of my pivot away from this is all just for fun into I'm now using my my comedy, my previous comedy skills to communicate science. And by doing plenty of that, I've then sort of started to realise actually I don't like the performing side of things either. And that's why I've stepped into writing. So it's it's been a lot of trial and error to get to where we are now. <laughs> Well, if you, if you write a list of all the things that you've done, been through and achieved in your life so far, Josh, the, the list seems like it's pretty long and it might be the list of a couple of people at least. And it's so interesting that you would, that you would have this passion to go to Mars and then Mars One would, would be announced. And from, from that 200,000 applicants, you know, fast forward a few years, we're now down to the last 100 globally. Yep. And, and out of the 100 on the planet, you are the second Mars One astronaut account that we've had on the podcast <laughs> yeah. out of about 50 podcasts, which is pretty good odds. The young and yeah. lovely Diane McGrath, who you're, you're uh, good friends with. Good friends with. I spoke to Diane this morning. She had a, a National Science Week event on this morning. And, uh, yeah, we had a bit of a chat afterwards. So she's doing really well. Um, she's an amazing human being. She is. She is. And, and you know, I, I don't know whether you – you're happy for me to um, – maybe I'll leave that out for the meantime. We'll, 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 uh, it was more around the, the lines of your selflessness when we were talking about <laughs> Diane, how if, you know, we were both very adamant that, that Diane's going to get a shot um, yep. and be part of maybe the first crew, the first four to go, you know, where, how long it'll be, another eight, nine years, whatever, and how you would very kindly give up your seat if it meant that Diane could go if she wasn't Ooh. picked. yeah. Um, one of the biggest things, again, this has been a learning experience for me on the from the comedy side of things. Um, comedy is very much a look at me process, um, and I don't mean that in a nasty way, but it's very individual focused. Yeah, um, it's very much person with a microphone sharing their thoughts with an audience of adoring people, um, and that's kind of where the introversion side of thing comes in for me. I, I don't like attention like that. I don't like being the center of attention. Um, if I can play a role and facilitate something to make things better for a group, absolutely. Like I'll use those skills to do that, but I don't need or want the attention. Um, and that is kind of fed into the whole Mars project as well in that I am, you know, ex-military white dude um, who fits the same profile as pretty much all of the, the Mercury and astro astronauts with the exception that I, I haven't done uh, military aviation. I know I, I can fly, I've been a pilot, um, but I haven't come from a military aviation background that most of those guys did. Yeah. Um, 
they were all guys. They were all white American dudes, um, all military, all the same background, all the same education, um, very much cookie cutter. And I fit a lot of those profile points. Um, there are mountains of role models uh, for future astronauts, for kids growing up who want to be astronauts, who look like me already. Um, you don't need another like white ginger idiot um, going and being a role model for kids. Um, what you do need is people who don't look like me, um, people from diverse backgrounds, people like Diane, uh, who you know is an amazing human being for all sorts of different um, elements that add extra diversity. Um, the stuff that she's done for for girls getting involved with science has been incredible. Um, so if I can contribute to the program, that's great. Um, but if there's a choice between, you know, me who looks like every other astronaut uh, from the, you see in the past um, versus someone like Diane um, or Yara Golden, uh, who's a, she's an American Mexican background, um, amazing human being working. I think she's doing a master's at MIT at the moment. Like there are so many other people um, who have got far, who come from a far more diverse background than I do, um, that would do so much better uh, and would do so much more for this planet and our, our species by being representatives that look different to what I do. Yeah, um, like I said, the white dudes that work in space and, and space and science and technology. Um, it'd be nice to have some really amazing role models that don't look like me instead. Yeah, well, it's only a matter of time, I think, before it happens. You know, we there really hasn't been much in the way of space anything since they landed on the moon in '69. Really, has there? There's been bugger all. I mean, the, the saddest element in this is that there has been a lot. There's a lot that's happened. It's just that people focus on the lunar landings. Um, we have a. We have a, a flying laboratory that's been permanently inhabited in space since 2000. Uh, the International Space Station soaring around the planet at 27,000 kilometres an hour for the last 20 years. Um, it's always had people on board. There have always been people living in space since the year 2000. Um, you know, SpaceX is doing extraordinary things, but the big element with SpaceX isn't just that their technology is is, you know, leaping ahead. They also broadcast it very well. Um, they also make it publicly available so people can see what they're doing. And NASA is an easy one to sort of single out um, because, you know, most a lot of folks associate space with NASA, um, but they are just the US space agency. They are one of many. Um, and a lot of the space agencies have had big issues uh, with people sort of seeing things as being a bit boring. Um, they've tried to, the space agencies have tried to make space exploration and space travel um, fairly routine um, because routine means safe and exploration and safety are two things that are fairly opposed to each other. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, I won't even begin to try and remember who the quote's from, um, but it's one that I use on a reasonably regular basis is that the, the road to exploration is often paved in blood. Um, people are doing things they've never done before and that means taking risks that you don't even necessarily know you're taking. Um, so if things are routine, you're not really exploring um, and it's one of the biggest barriers that NASA in particular has had to the idea of exploring Mars 
because you actually need to send people to another planet and trust that they'll figure the things out for themselves, uh, that they'll solve those problems, that they'll make the decisions that you hope they make. Um, and if they don't, trusting that they'll make the ones that will act in the best interests. And NASA as an organisation has tended to be very conservative, understandably so. There's taxpayers' money involved. Um, so they really want people who are very highly trained um, to do things that are often not super complicated, but they do them unquestioningly. And releasing that control from Earth and trusting people to go to another planet um, is definitely one of the biggest barriers. The culture side of things is one of the biggest barriers to actually exploring another planet. Yeah. Do you know word for word the whole script from Matt Damon in The Martian? <laughs> I, I know a lot, far more than I probably should. <laughs> I love that movie, man. I love my favourite kind of movies. How close to so, reality do you reckon that's going to be? Uh, it depends on how you focus on it. Um, like the growing of the spuds in the so manure. The growing of spuds is something that uh, is already occurring. Um, so with NASA, the European Space Agency, uh, different researchers around the world have been growing potatoes and other plants uh, in what we call Mars simulations, uh, regolith. So it's, it's simulated Mars soil that's been made up here on Earth using the same sort of mix of what we know from the rovers on Mars. Um, they have been checking out the dirt, basically, and telling yeah. us what's in yeah. the dirt. We then make that dirt up here in bulk as well and grow plants in that. Um, and one of the biggest concerns we've had out of all of that is that there's quite a, a few heavy metals in the regolith on Mars. And so they've basically been trying to figure out, are the, is this going to be an issue? Um, and are the plants going to absorb this? Are the tomatoes, for instance, going to absorb the, the cadmium that's in the soil? Um, and most of the research that's come out has said, no, uh, it won't be an issue. The biggest problem we've got with dealing with soil on Mars uh, is the perchlorates. Um, there's a whole range of uh, magnesium, potassium perchlorates, which they act as a, as a superoxide um, and they actually attack our thyroid glands and they shut down our thyroid. Um, they actually tend to be quite poisonous. So um, they're fairly easy to filter out of the soil. You essentially wash it with water, um, clean the soil and, and wash these things out. But yeah, there's, the, the dust on Mars is fairly toxic. So Matt Damon kind of skipped a step in there when he's bringing in truckloads of, of dirt into the hab um, and then soaking it with water um, because any time he was breathing the dust around it, um, it would have been attacking his thyroid. Well, he did look pretty average by the time they rescued him. So maybe his thyroid function was fucked. So and again, it it depends on how deep you want to delve in here. But the whole thing about uh, him looking pretty shabby at the end, um, people talk about eating potatoes. Uh, it sounds awful, but the Irish pretty much proved that that's not a sustainable diet. Um, that's not something you can keep doing for long. Um, if you were to put butter on all of those potatoes, uh, you'd get a full nutrient mix. Um, but actually eating potatoes on their own is not sufficient to keep people alive long term. Um, so he, from, from a nutritionist perspective, uh, he, he would have died. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the issue with plants, right? There's no, uh, if you are, if you have to exist, I don't know whether you you can exist on a pure, will it be purely vegan diet when you, when, we, once you've been we, there for a while? Using, 
we'd be expecting to be completely vegan while we're there, which I know is not something that uh, Diane in particular, a fairly ardent carnivore, um, is a big fan of. It's actually something that I am not a huge fan of either. Um, but the reality of the mission is that we need to be fully sustainable. And in terms of sustainability, the idea of having um, large animals is certainly not an option. Um, entry level, we're probably looking at insects. Uh, so in terms of growing crickets and things like that, um, yeah. that's probably yeah. the best option. Again, I'm delving into Diane's content here. <laughs> um, but, yeah, in terms of sustainability, um, growing crickets, breeding crickets uh, is definitely probably option number one for us. Yeah. And the next thing we'd go to after something like this is probably chickens. Um, chickens are fairly easy to look after. Um, honeybees will sort of play a role in pollination for plants as well. Um, and we might look at something like uh, aquaponics or some other sort of system where we yeah. can have fish. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one because I like Diana, a carnivore as well for, for a multitude of reasons. And for that reason alone, for me, I was just thinking about this before we jumped on this this interview, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Yeah. And, and, and that's fine. Um, but it's interesting. I watched something recently. Uh, it was a podcast and uh, the guy's name escapes me. He, he's the guy that's the, the AI expert. He's been doing it for 30 years. He's been on most of the major podcasts. He's been on Joe Rogan. He's talking about this singularity event that's going to happen. Not Ray at, Kurzweil? Uh, it might be, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's kind of like a bit of a hippie dude. Yeah. Really interesting guy. Do, do you dabble or have had much um, effort from your own personal interest in singularity and ha how that will impact this whole thing? Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's I'm certainly no expert in any of this sort of stuff, um, but that side of things and the future of technology um, is definitely something that I am very heavily invested in. Um, my primary interest, I suppose, is the philosophy and the ethics behind a lot of this sort of stuff. Um, if you are reaching, Ray Kurzweil talks about singularity and that is something that we're definitely streaming towards very quickly. Um, my area of interest, I suppose, is asking the questions, if we're writing code um, and that code is starting to write itself, um, what are the biases that we're introducing as human beings? Um, again, talking about white dudes doing stuff, um, vast majority of, of coders, programmers uh, through Silicon Valley in particular um, are straight white dudes. Um, so what biases are they introducing? What sort of things are they not aware of um, that may impact other users that don't come from their same cultural background? Um, and the potential for some, for those sort of elements, those kind of biases to creep into um, a, a super intelligent AI are pretty pretty scary. Um, that's something that I, I sort of yeah I'm concerned about and interested in. Yeah. Uh, about how we we're not necessarily going to produce something that's evil. Um, we just could potentially produce something that does its job um, far better uh, than we really want it to. Yeah. Um, an element there where we actually want imperfection in some of these machines because they can take things far further than we ever needed to or ever wanted them to. Um, it's like re reductum ad absurdum, like taking things to absurdities far further than we, we want them to. 
And just for those that are listening, wondering what the hell singularity is, <laughs> it's that it's the the progression of artificial intelligence, which will reach a point that it then becomes smarter than the human brain, if I'm not mistaken. And and then they think that it'll get to a speed at, at some point where they'll generate four Nobel Prize winning items a minute versus yep. four a year, right? Like millions of times faster problem solving. And maybe, and it'll happen in our lifetime. For anyone that's like, you know, you and I are a similar age, uh, it'll happen, they think, in the next 30, 40 years, I think. Right. Again, Ray Kurzweil's changed progression uh, predictions a little bit. But it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely even, I would say, most of what I've read has been suggesting sort of 2030s, 2040s. So not even wow. 30, 40 years away. Um, and it's not necessarily about it being smarter than us. Uh, it's actually the point where progress becomes exponential. So yeah. it stops being, you know, progressive incre- improvements. It reaches a point where it can start improving itself far faster than we could ever improve it. Yeah. Um, it just races away. So, it, yeah, essentially you see the line just pretty much go straight up. Um, it stops being a case of, you know, even progress or linear, relatively linear progress, and it becomes truly exponential. And the, the thing that I find so interesting about it, Josh, is that the and I was I was exactly like you. I was like, oh, whoa, like what's going on? Like what impact is that going to have? Right. The thing I think about if they say it's going to be as effective as they say it's going to be, then it'll solve all of the problems that I have in my mind right now, in theory, right? Yeah. And 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 a million more. It'll solve the population crisis. Like it'll, it'll solve any any problem that we have, and I think that's really cool. Like I'm looking at it from a more optimistic point of view, but but you know, in the end, um, it then could it could be um, Terminator. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm I'm definitely as much as I'm a a, a grump. Um, I'm an eternal optimist with this sort of stuff. Um, the concern is not about things improving. Uh, it's a concern about um, disparity. Um, we have a look at the way things are right now and compared to, you know, the conditions for living um, compared to where we were 50, 100 years ago, um, it's it's a whole order of magnitude improved. Um, yeah. However, there are still, there's still a lot of folks who are living uh, in extreme poverty. Uh, there's still, so it's not just about uh things improving it's about improving the floor for everyone and that's what i suppose i'm talking about with those biases being introduced into ai it's not just about solving problems it's asking what problems are being solved by that ai and what biases it's carrying with it um, so that it's not just solving problems that might deal for you and i uh, again as as cis white dudes um, it's also going and solving problems that aren't going to harm other people and are going to help improve things for folks from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, so I suppose, yeah, the, the ethics and the philosophy blends with cultural backgrounds to start asking questions about what problems are going to be solved. Is it an AI that is going to solve our problems by going Terminator and murdering everyone else. Uh, if that's the best solution for the, the well-being of the creator, um, is that, you know, is that an ethical solution? Um, so I suppose 
I agree. It's always getting better. Um, you look at the World Health Organization, you look at uh, the UN's data and all this sort of stuff. Things are getting better for everybody everywhere. Um, but there's still some pretty drastically awful things that are going on. And the wealth, uh, the, the misdistribution of wealth um, is probably one of the biggest concerns that I've got. And the idea that AI would enable whoever produces it to have enormous wealth far, far more than anyone um, else is a bigger concern. So yeah, I'm more about the equality side of things of how we get enough for everybody rather than just empowering the folks who've got control over what is essentially a, a weapon of mass destruction with something like AI. Yeah. Um, you can harness the, the atom to produce huge amounts of power um, for energy. You can also harness it into a bomb. Um, and who controls those kind of those technologies is a is a concern, and how it's being used is a concern. Why don't we? Just a thought that came into my brain as you were saying about the atom. Why don't we blow up all the garbage that we're creating? <laughs> what's wrong with well, that? <laughs> I mean, rather, than, what's the end goal with it? Is the question I've got. Um, so we could we could blow things up, um, but. The energy that's required in order to do that, um, it doesn't go away. The stuff, this stuff doesn't go away um, unless you're, you, like I said, literally splitting atoms, and in which case you are you're converting mass into energy. Um, you're not really losing anything. You're distributing it. Um, so rather than blowing up. Gas- garbage uh, it'd be much nicer to collect all the garbage up um, and find different ways of sorting it um, take banana peels take pig manure take all those sort of stuff and look at the things that it produces and find ways to repurpose that yeah um, and it, it kind of comes back to that spaceship earth attitude um, that uh, Buckmeister Fuller talked about um, where you're in a closed circuit environment you're like Earth is for for the most part a, a closed circuit environment. It's a closed life support system. Um, we get a little bit of rock and a few other bits and pieces coming in from from outer space, but for the most part, it's closed. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you need to find ways to utilize the resources that are available and treat them as resources rather than just treating things like a waste product and then dumping them out somewhere else. Just for the record, listeners or viewers, I'm not a fan of blowing up garbage. I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather use that AI to figure out ways of not not producing the garbage in the first place. Um, I don't want seagulls with uh, six pack um, plastic around their neck. But let's deviate to another uh, section of the chat that's incredibly interesting to me, and I know will be incredibly interesting to our listeners: the subject of polygamy or polyamory or polyamory. How do you pronounce it? Which one is it? So, (laughs) uh, so from a definition perspective, uh, polygamy is talking about uh, one guy marrying multiple women. Um, From a from the Latin polyamory, you're actually talking about many loves, multiple loves. Um, So. I, I met, like I said earlier on, I met someone in 2015 who um, had a boyfriend already um, and I was completely and utterly smitten um, and she basically talked about how she and her, her boyfriend were sort of trying to figure out a way to be open 
um, and she was navigating it. It was all new territory for her. It was very new territory for me. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. And the idea that I might be involved with someone who was emotionally involved and romantically involved with someone else um, was, was challenging to wrap my head around. Um, I suppose the way that I, I reconciled it at the time was that I'm not staying, I'm not planning on staying on this planet. Like I am not interested in the traditional pathway of, of having kids, uh, getting married, all that jazz, like that's never really appealed. Um, and so to be introduced to someone who I thought was extraordinary, uh, I still think it's pretty extraordinary, um, to be introduced to someone like that and have them introduce this idea that uh, love and relationships don't have to be monogamous um, was, yeah, it, it threw me for six uh, because I had realistically grown up around a very fairly strict structure where if you met someone and you liked them um, but you're already involved with someone else, then, you know, you kind of had to, you had to cut off that part of the way that you felt. You couldn't necessarily express the reality or be honest with your own feelings. Um, you had to deny that part of you um, because the, the cultural expectation around it was that, you know, you've got a girlfriend, um, so you can't feel that way about someone else. Um, and the idea that that, that barrier wasn't there, that that barrier was artificial, um, was quite a realisation for me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I suppose polyamory is one way of describing it. I think more realistically um, from, a, from a more accurate perspective and a more academic perspective, I think what I do is actually more in line with um, emotional anarchy <laughs> <laughs> in that I... I treat everyone um, on a one-to-one basis um, and the way that I interact with everyone, regardless of whether or not it's romantic, sexual, like platonic, whatever, male, female, whatever, it's on a one-to-one basis. Um, So it's not based around the idea that I've got this relationship so I can't have this relationship with this person. They're all treated individually and they obviously interact, um, you know, so-and-so doesn't like your, your best mate doesn't like that you're dating this new girl or whatever, like those sort of things still happen. Um, I suppose where I'm coming from is I don't actually care what other people think about my other relationships. I care about the individual relationships. Um, I'm forming a, a connection, a friendship with you. Um, and if I met someone else that didn't like you, for instance, that wouldn't then impact the way that I connected with you. Um, it's got nothing to do. Their opinion has got nothing to do with our connection. Um, and I suppose I apply that same attitude to romantic relationships, which is why everyone gets excited and int- interested about it as well. In that if I meet someone who I am attracted to and I'm interested in, then I'm going to pursue that regardless of any other relationships or other connections that I might have as well. It's a it's an amazing uh, concept to wrap your head around for for anyone that hasn't um, or hasn't ever heard of it or, or know much about it at all because it's so intriguing and like a lot of the things that I think people attribute to to what you're talking about are you know Ricky Lake or 
Phil Donahue or um, Jerry Springer, heaven forbid. Um, but it's not like that at all. And, and one of my favorite sections of XNXX.com, which is a very famous porn site, yeah. not that I indulge myself in a lot of pornography these days, is the <laughs> swinger, is the swinger section. And there's some really well-made um, videos that are they're made by Playboy or one of the major brands. And they have real couples that, yep. that go in there and swing for the first time or second time. And, and, and they have the whole build-up yeah. as well as the sex part. I, I just, I like it for the stories. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, I suppose the, the, the swinging side of things is definitely a, a different element um, to what I suppose I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, that, it factors in. Um, and I suppose the big thing to take away from all of this isn't um, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. There is a huge spectrum of what people are comfortable with and what people want to do and what their interests are. Um, and I suppose provided, as far as I'm concerned, it is pro- provided everyone is honest with everyone else, uh, everyone has got sort of active, informed consent on what's occurring, um, then do whatever. Uh, that's been very much my attitude for quite a few years now that it doesn't really matter what other people think of it. Um, it's what you're interested in. Um, swinging has got zero interest for me. Um, the idea of seeing a partner with someone else, not my thing. I don't, I don't really understand the appeal of that, but I know that some people do. And if that's their thing, go for it. Um, there are different things in, there's things in bed that I like that I don't like. Um, and you just say that. Um, and no one gets offended by it. No one gets upset. Um, you just sort of go, well, no, it's not my thing. Or no, I do really like this. And as long as people know, um, they then have a choice as to whether or not they want to engage in that. Um, if I've, I've met people in the last few years who... We, we love each other, we're smitten with each other, um, but they're not comfortable with the idea of me seeing anyone else. And I, my attitude to it is that's fair. I, I completely understand that. That This is part of who I am. Um, I, don't, I don't really value monogamy personally. Um, and so you're going to kind of have to try and figure it out. I'm not going to jam it in your face either. Uh, I'm not going to be deliberately setting out to upset you. But this is a factor in who I am, and if it's if it's a deal breaker for you, then it's a deal breaker. Um, and again, no offence, no upset around any of it. It's purely coming from a perspective of being honest with who you are and what you're looking for and where your interests lie, and being open and honest with other people and sort of taking very much a take it or leave it attitude, not aggressively, but from a from a place of honesty, I suppose. Josh, it's the best way that you can go about anything in life. You know, like I, yeah, it, it really is. Like the, I was talking to someone earlier today about a relationship that I had uh, three and a half years ago. With I started dating a 30-year-old virgin when I was 35 and for religious and cultural reasons. And, and I fell very quickly in love with this woman. And about a month in, she said to me, look, I've got something to talk to you about and and she said that she was saving herself for marriage. And this was before I became a bit more self-developed, Josh. And I, she gave me the right of exit. She said, I understand if this isn't your thing. You know, I didn't realize until my feelings became really strong. 
Um, and she said, you've got a week to think about it. And I was like, I wave the right. I love you. I'll do whatever. <laughs> and then I spent yeah. the next 12 months trying to fuck her. And, <laughs> and, and I ruined the relationship. And yeah. because of my inability to have the courage to make a ballsy decision and go, do you know what? Now I think about it. This is a really important part of my life. I'd given up drinking, smoking and drugs at that point and gambling and like making sweet, sweet love was pretty high on my list of priorities. And I, I, to her credit, she stayed strong and I never, <laughs> I never consummated yeah. that relationship. But I learned some really important lessons after a horrendous breakup about the importance of setting very clear boundaries for my own needs in order to get a much better outcome. And now I'm in the relationship of my dreams with someone that I'm totally honest with and is totally honest with me. So I applaud you, sir. It It's not without mistakes. Don't get me wrong. Like um, it's, yeah, it's really just about knowing where you stand and knowing that those things can change too. Um, maybe the situation changes. I've, I've had enough practice, I suppose, now over the last five years to be pretty confident in where I stand for most things. Um, but I'm also, I've been surprised as well. Um, I actually, I got back together, foolishly got back together with a, an ex-partner um, a couple of years back. And she was very anti the idea of, of me seeing anyone else. Um, it was going to be exclusively monogamous. Um, and I contemplated it. I thought about it um, and trialed it for a short period of time and just went, this is not me. This is not me being honest with myself. Um, I, without making it too gender specific, um, I like women. Like I'm good friends with a lot of women and it's not always sexual. Um, It's often not sexual. Um, Some of my best friends are women and it's a completely platonic thing. I like women, but I'm also not going to lie when I'm physically attracted to, to someone. Um, and so it's about continuously negotiating all of that um, and being aware that you change, other people change, and all of these things can vary. So don't sort of lock it down too hard. Be honest about where you are right now and understand and everyone has to be on the same page that these things can change over time. Yeah, 100%. And I, one of the things I think the probably wouldn't be quite so bad when you're living your lifestyle, it'd be yelling out the wrong lover's name in the heat of passion. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> I, have not, I have not done that. <laughs> I will admit to once mumbling the wrong name in my sleep, um, but no, I haven't, I haven't called out someone's. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about your health journey. Because you you've nearly died. Yeah, or a few pretty times, close to it. I think I think I know what yeah, I think I know where you're going. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, most people have had a near-death experience, or so they think, you know, like when they fell on the pool when they were six years of age. But yours was pretty serious. And something that ties in with a lot of the stuff that that I'm interested in in terms of a lot of nutritional and health and and uh, the it was Lyme. You, uh, you got a Lyme tick bite? Yeah. Yeah. So when I, when I was in the UK, so after I I left the army and the Navy here, um, I moved across to the UK and joined the British Royal Marine Commandos and spent 12 months with them. 
And while I was out on Dartmoor National Park during a, an exercise, we're out in minus 22, uh, minus 19 or whatever it was during the blizzard. I think it matters once it gets that goal. Fine. I was about to say, once, once you're past about minus anything, it's yeah, it doesn't really matter too much. Um, but I got bitten by a deer tick while I was out there and uh, didn't think anything of it. I'd been bitten by hundreds of ticks when I was with the Army in Australia. Um, didn't give it a second thought pulled this tick off and uh, binned it and then went about my day. Um, at the time, I was probably one of the fittest guys in the troop. I'd actually just won an award for fitness uh, from our from our PTs, our physical trainers, wow. um, as a PT superior. Uh, and within a couple of weeks, um, I was getting confused. I was not able to sort of keep down food. Um, things weren't great. I was starting to get weaker. Um and no one really had an explanation. Everyone just sort of thought, oh, something wrong with Richards. Um, and about six weeks after this ticket bit me, um, I had two of my mates carry me into hospital because I couldn't walk. Um, and they couldn't figure out what it was. Um, I had mountains of blood tests. I think I had something like 16 um, shots of blood taken out wow. in the space of a few days. Bit of a rainstorm here, I apologise. Oh, wow. <laughs> I thought it was a herd of elephants coming through your lounge room. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a bit of a thunderstorm happening here. Cool. Um, and uh, yeah, huge number of blood samples taken out, um, and uh, no one could figure anything out. Uh, they started t- testing me for HIV, for celiac disease, for hepatitis B because of the places I've been in the past. Yeah. Um, there was a huge number of lists of potential diseases that might have been lurking in my system for years that they had to test for. Um, the one that they tested earliest was limes. The problem was they took the blood sample first thing in the morning. They didn't send the blood samples to the lab until later that afternoon. And in the particular test they were looking at, you actually need to, you need to test that blood sample within six hours of it coming out of the body to get a, a positive or a negative result. Um, so it took another doctor looking at my results a couple of weeks later while I was still wasting away in, in hospital um, to suddenly realise that, they had a null result for limes. They didn't have a positive or a negative one. Um, so they ran the test again, and sure enough, I came back limes positive. Um, but by that stage, like I, I was starting to learn to walk again. Um, it, it was still in my system. Like they still hadn't started to treat the limes, um, but I was learning to walk again. And they hadn't thought I'd get out of hospital. Um, it was yeah. I was pretty light. I was one of the lightest guys in the troop. The commandos have a minimum weight of 60 kilos and I was hovering at about 61, 62. Um, when they put me in a hospital, I lost eight kilos in six days. Um, and yeah, I was just a wreck. So um, it was a bit of an experience. <laughs> um, a deer tick, uh, disease tick. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, I didn't know anything about Lyme's disease before it. Um, and I sure as hell learnt a fair bit about it through the process. So, is it considered an autoimmune disease? Like it uh, triggers an autoimmune bacteria, response. Bacterial blood poisoning. So it's a it's a bacteria that comes off the ticks' teeth, the jaws, um, and it acts as a yeah, it's, it's blood poisoning essentially. God damn, that sounds horrendous. It was not fun. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next? When when are you going to find out about 
at least being included in the initial 24 astronaut shortlist that will be? So that's, that's a complicated question. So the next stage for us is to cut the group down from the 100 to about 24. Um, there's, there's elements that we are privy to as candidates that we can't share publicly. Um, there's still ongoing discussions around all of this sort of stuff. Um, but the big question, I suppose, for us is when's it going to move forward? Um, the plan had been for some time to get all 100 of us together uh, in one place and do group testing like that. Um, but with COVID-19 going on at the moment, pretty much everything's on hold. Yeah. So the real question for us is, you know, do we stick with it, uh, keep bunkering down and then see what happens on the other side? Um, we've had some folks who've dropped out. Uh, I've had quite a few people drop out through the years as they've started to question whether or not this is something they actually care about. Um, it's the whole project forces you to question where your priorities are and what's important to you. And those things, again, change over time. Um, what people might be comfortable with when they first signed up, uh, maybe give it a few years and they start to sort of go, oh, maybe this isn't the thing for me. Um, maybe... I do want to have kids or, you know, maybe I want to settle down or I've, maybe I found what I was really looking for. And Mars was just a, a, you know, the idea of going to Mars was just a stepping stone on that. Um, and that's, that's up to everyone to figure out for themselves. Um, for me, every step of the way, it's kind of, it's gotten narrower. I found like I've, I've discovered more about who I am in the last eight years since I've been involved with Mars One than I have at any other point in my life. Um, the commandos tested me in a way that I, I learnt what I was physically capable of um, far more than anything else. But from an emotional perspective, from a mental perspective of what is important to me, um, Mars One has been by far the big challenge. It's been the question, thousands of other questions that I've then had to go through and figure out what works for me and what doesn't i it's something so like i said said before like those those movies like this the space movies i i love them them and back to the future and yep. uh it's it's a real thrill to, to have you on the show and and for those that that want to find josh richards and and learn more about what you're doing how can they do that easiest thing is for people to basically check out cosmic nomad.space so rather than having a .com on the end of my website, uh, it's dot, it's literally the word space as in outer space. Um, so if they type in cosmicnomad.space, uh, that'll take them to the landing page for the book that I've got coming out uh, in September 17th, Cosmic Nomad. Um, but it's also part of my larger website, um, which has got all the details around the speaking engagements that I do, uh, the writing that I do for Patreon, um, all these different things. So. Uh, the raw website itself is joshrichards.space, um, but people seem to find Cosmic Nomad is easier to remember. <laughs> well, look, we're, the, the other stuff that we've got to touch on today, Josh, like it could be a five-hour show. We haven't even discussed your work <laughs> background and um, maybe we revisit this at a, at a later date when the shortlist has come down and the clock sure. is ticking. <laughs> but before we wrap this up, Josh, was there anything that you wanted to finish on? Uh, no, other than I suppose that the whole experience with being involved with Mars One has been um, all about self-reflection. It's all about me figuring out what works for me and 
it, that doesn't always marry up with what I was raised with or what other people might expect from me. Um, but when you ask a question that's, again, I hesitate using the pun, but when you ask an out-of-this-world type question of would you leave the earth behind forever, um, you tend to get unusual answers. And the thing that I love, I suppose, about Mars One the most is that I get to ask that question of other people on a regular basis and I get to see them figuring out for themselves how they want to live their lives um, because going to Mars is just one thing, um, but the real question is sort of how we want to live life while we're here on Earth right now um, before we go to Mars. And I suppose that's what I've tried to tackle in the new book. Um, and it's the one thing that I absolutely adore about the program is that it challenges people and makes them ask questions about whether or not they would do it or not. Well, we wish you all the best and a big live long and prosper. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Josh Richards. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.